Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the the simulcast of your beautiful day on the gratitude radio network and also the neil haley show and i'm excited to welcome the program the co-host of the show jen mog jen thanks for stopping by and we have a great guest today thank you neil and thank you everybody for listening to your beautiful day on the gratitude radio network where we hope to bring gratitude to your life and uh on today's show neil i am so thankful and so excited that we have vikram gandhi the award-winning and boundary-pushing producer and director. And we're going to be speaking to him about his anthology and with the movie Six Nine. Really, this he's a director of a very popular uh, Hulu documentary on a very controversial uh, rap story. So I'll let Jen ask the first question because we're probably going to get into how you became a director. But I really want to talk about this project because, again, I've been talking to a lot of people it's a big buzz but let's find out first a little bit about you vikram go ahead with your first question john oh my goodness um so many so just let me start from the beginning because i'm a filmmaker producer screenwriter how did how did the love for film come into your life and come to you uh you know i i think like anybody i grew up on watching movies being influenced by movies and television and, uh, you know, as I was trying to find a path after, you know, I, I went to college in New York, went to Columbia, and studied film, studied writing. But as I was trying to uh, find my way, I guess I, uh, at some point, just started picking up a camera and filming. Um, and I realized that, you know, in our age, it was kind of its own way, uh, holding a camera and shooting documentary was a little like having a pen and so uh i just ended up um you know just becoming a camera fan uh failing succeeding and uh gradually working my way to starting a company with some friends uh that i i worked with in college and then you know at some point uh you know i had done so many commercials i couldn't count them and decided i just needed to stop and actually make a movie so um, I made my first film about 10 years ago uh, that was called Kumare. And then since then I've tried to do as much long form and stay in the long form medium of both narrative and documentary filmmaking. Wow. And you know, Vikram, when we talk about that specific love for it, what do you think? And you said, you finally said, I'm going to make films. What do you think your big break was as a, as a director and filmmaker? What would you think? Uh, my big break. Uh, well, I'm not sure if I think in those terms, but um, I think I just made the decision to uh, take some risks. So uh, the first film I I made uh, was called Kumare. In uh, I made that in uh, 2011. Um, started I guess in 2010, so 10 years ago. Uh, 
I had been running a production company at, at that time. And I, uh, like I said, I had just done too many commercials and really wanted to make something of substance. So um, I had wanted to make a film that was kind of looking at new, the, the world of new age and yoga in America. And um, I had this idea, like, what if I just, just pretended to be a, uh, a guru myself um, and so that's what I did and then my first movie was kind of a social experiment where I just kind of did something that um, I think nobody really thought was appropriate or would make sense which was right. I pretended to be a religious leader um, and I made a movie about it and that was uh, Kumari that was my I guess my first big break it was really the first risk I took in filmmaking and the first risk I took as far as putting myself out there as an artist and um, and uh, that, uh, you know, one South by Southwest was released uh, uh, all around the world. And that was kind of my big break. Okay. Next question. Then. No, and he won an award for that. How did that feel to win the audience award? Uh, I think it was validating, you know, I think it was, it's uh, awards are, yeah, awards are cool. I mean, I, the film we made, I just, I felt like we hadn't, I hadn't really seen anything like it before. So whether it won an award or not, I, I was really kind of happy um, we had made it. Uh, it was, it was more rewarding just like talking to people and getting their reactions than anything yeah. else. Seeing your the baby. award is just a resume thing that I can say on a, on a radio show like this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it's it, at least it validates what you did and that's important. Yeah. And then totally. puts in your resume so that when you're looking for other projects, people are more willing to talk to you before that. Sure, yeah. Not. So it's like you get, you get your peers and people to say, Hey, you're something that could be that, Hey, you have talent. Why would you come up with this? Why don't you think about this? And that's what I guess that process is in this business. Wouldn't you say Vikram is just kind of, you get, you build your resume and then opportunities open up and you have to take them. Yeah, or you don't have to take them. <laughs> right, I'm sure you've you seen things like, no way, I'm not taking it, right? That people. Uh, yeah, I, I say uh, sometimes it's uh, it's more important to say no than yes. <laughs> Dan, is that the same thing you think about as a director too? When and, and producer that certain things is like, no way, I can't do this. Uh, it's on so many sometimes the day that you're shooting, it's it's what you feel. But when you go into it, you go into it with everything you have in every cell of your body. You know, it's just one of those. It's like a day at work. Like some days at work, you're like, what the heck is going on? Um, but when you're in film, and it all and everything looks nice and clean, and everybody looks like they've taken a bath, like day one, and by you know the second week, it, we look like the living dead walking around. <laughs> But it's just, it's a part of film. It's the best life is film life. I mean, I think. And I want to ask you about your narrative film, Barry. And that's caught the attention of so many people. And to do a film of Barack and his youth. Can you take us through that and through your journey of filming that and putting that together? Sure. Um... I I was uh, I had been working on Vice for about five years and uh, had been uh, contemplating making this movie. One of the reasons that I had um, 
thought about making it was because I lived on 109th Street um, in Columbus when I was a sophomore in college in 1997. And um, I was reading um, Barack Obama's uh, memoirs at some point, you know, in the last, I guess, seven or eight years ago. And um, I read in his memoirs that he lived on 109th Street between uh, Columbus and Amsterdam. And um, when I looked at, I, I started looking at that chapter of his life, I, I knew exactly what building he lived in. And I realized that he walked the same streets as I had when I was a student there and probably had similar experiences as sort of feeling like maybe racially an outsider being that he was a mixed race kid from Hawaii who had sort of plopped down on what would be one of the biggest uh, crack blocks in New York. Um, that was mostly Dominican Puerto Rican. Um, and that he going to this elite school probably had a lot of these uh, emotions that were similar to what I had when I was in college. So at that moment, after reading, you know, about his own journey of like self-discovery when he was a young man, it related, I related to it so much that I just thought, what an interesting thing to make a film about. And I already sort of visualized in my head because I had been on those same streets, maybe, yeah, 15 years later, but um, there was some insight there. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I worked with a, a friend of mine who also went to Columbia and, um, you know, knew about uh, and sort of had a perspective on the subject. And we kind of tried to, you know, tell a story about what uh, about a young man in, in 80s New York trying to uh, find himself. How difficult was that, especially, you know, you're starting to get known to be able to do that type of a documentary? Um, what do you mean? Difficult, uh, like getting the research and putting it all together. Well, I mean, being it was a narrative movie, uh, it was fictionalized uh, from his memoirs. There's okay. actors. It's it's not a documentary. Oh, it's not. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's there's actors and um, Anya Taylor Joy from Queen's Gambit. Uh, she is the co-star oh, wow. of it. She plays uh, Barack's uh, young girlfriend at the time named Charlotte. And um, Devin Terrell is the lead star in it. He does an amazing job of, of resembling um, a young Barack Obama um, from, you know, writing left-handed to playing basketball and, um, you know, speaking a very similar tone. So uh, we did not, uh, it's not a actual documentary. It's a, you know. I gotcha. Bio, it's a it's a snippet of his life, so you wouldn't call it a bio a biopic, but um, you know, historical fiction. Yeah, and it's amazing that again, Jen, and I'll let Jen go to the next question uh, for you to get Netflix. That's got to be the next step, right? To get an opportunity for that 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 movie to be on Netflix. That's got to be awesome, right? Um, yeah, we 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 premiered at Toronto. Um, we had a good reception and Netflix snatched it up. And that was when they first started doing originals. And to be honest, I don't, no one really knew what to think. Like what were we going to, what is this? What's the Netflix original at that point? Um, so it was exciting. Yeah. To get it out to the world. Um, uh, it was, it was an experiment at that point, what a Netflix original was. It sounds funny now thinking about it. Uh, but in our like vastly, 
rapidly changing landscape. Very new thing when we when we had done it. All right, Jen. Next question. Thanks. Thanks. What was your as a mother of gratitude? What is your gratitude moment? Do you have like one specific project that you've done that is just this is your gratitude moment? Sorry. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, Something that yeah. do I have a specific moment that it's my gratitude moment. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what that means to be honest. So if there's if there was like a little miracle that happened on one of your sets, or if it with everything coming together, an epiphany that you have, I start my day off with gratitude, and that's uh, my superpower. So I want to inspire the world with more gratitude in their lives and people's lives. And that's the heart of Gratitude Radio Network. So I usually ask everybody, do they have a gratitude moment to where there's one part of a piece of time that you hang on to for inspiration? Um, I'm not really sure. Um... I think you, you were looking at Vikram as something that like, wow, this is something that was the best accomplishment that I'd be able to do in my career. That's yeah. something I hang my hat on that. Wow. This, I can't believe I was able to do this and you're grateful for it happening. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to um, understand. Um, is there a moment in my career? Uh, you know, uh, it's, I'm just, it's a hustle. This is a hustle. It's a hustle business. Um, I'm not, I, I'm grateful. I, I'm grateful every moment that I get to work in it. And I'm grateful that I get to make a living. Um, and, uh, and that I, I think I, I think very few people have the luxury of making films that they care about. Right. And, um, and so I, I guess if, if you want me to, to make sense of how that fits into me, for, for me, as I was saying, um, I'm grateful every time I say no to a project. That is the greatest feeling to be like, I don't need to do something I don't care about. So that would probably be my, my moment of gratitude. Every time a call comes from something I don't really feel like doing, um, but most people might feel obligated to have to do, um, I, I, feel, I feel really grateful that I get to choose um, and take my time and do the things that I care about. All right, now let's get to the the, the gist. A lot of uh, people into this six uh, the H the Hulu the Hulu documentary sixty nine the saga of Danny Hernandez. What how what made you want to do this project? Be involved in this project? Um, well, I just had this idea. You know, I was following. I just discovered the kid online. I started following him. He lived down the street. Uh, where I live in Brooklyn, I, w I went to the bodega probably maybe, you know, months or years after he wor worked there. Uh, but the same bodega he worked at. And I just was like, oh, this story is crazy. And it is down the street. And I'm a documentary filmmaker and I, I can do this thing. So it just was like an opportunity that was sort of felt like it was handed to me and it, it's not something that I was like 10 years ago. If you told me I was going to make a movie about a tattooed face rapper, uh, Bushwick, I, w I wouldn't have believed you, but 
Um, it's just, it was something so peculiar that drew me in. And instead of really like overthinking it, I just kind of went on instinct and um, made a decision to make it. And that's really all that was. I, I own a camera and I know how to shoot. So um, that's how it started. I just started asking questions, knocking on doors and started making a movie. It is truly a DIY film made by me and a couple people uh, during, mostly during quarantine uh, in an apartment. Um, and uh, we were uh, up against a lot of competition. Some of the biggest film companies in the world are still working on their own versions of the story. Uh, but we were the closest to the action, we had probably the best access um, to parts of the story uh, that really no one else had even you know, heard of. So uh, I just went to the sort of hardcore essence of filmmaking, which is just turn your camera on and ask people questions and let them open up to you, you know? So that's really just how it happened. That is incredible. At any moment in time, did you feel like you were in danger? Because in watching it, I feel like it's like you guys are in some dangerous situations or at any point in time, there could be more bullets flying. I mean, there's nothing in the film that you see that really, um, where you, we're really in danger in the film. There's things that we filmed around stuff that didn't make it, um, where there were guns and bullets flying and, um, but ultimately they were, they were sort of, um, you know, leads that we were following to get access to things. Um, you know, if you tried to go down the, go down a rabbit hole of gangs in New York as uh, generations of filmmakers have before, uh, this is just another sort of era of gangs in New York. And, um, you know, we, but, but at the end of the day, like, you know, I've spent a good amount of time traveling the world, meeting gangs around the, around the world. And uh, you're only really in danger if you, if you don't trust the people you're with and they don't trust you. Right. And, um, you know, every situation I entered in was, there was a level of trust with people and they trust me. So I never, I never actually felt in danger uh, with anything that's in the film. Now let's talk about specifically enough, the controversy of Takashi 69 for people that don't know that rapper without giving away the whole documentary. Uh, yeah, he's a controversial figure. Um, in his very essence, he's a walking contradiction. He is a rainbow haired, tattooed all over his face, Mexican rapper from Bushwick who uses the N word. Um, ad nauseum and um, antagonizes other rappers, creates beef, and at some point um, claimed to, on social media, have joined the, the Bloods uh, and a specific uh, set of the Bloods in Brooklyn and, um, you know, boasted of crimes, beef with other rappers, violence against them. Um, you know, he was... He, uh, He's been documented on TMZ by putting a hit on another rapper um, and there was shooting the following day. So all of these things led to an incredibly um, controversial figure. And that's how I found him. And that's how most of the world has found him. Uh, but it also turns out um, that that's what has gotten arrested. And uh, that's where our story really begins is after he gets arrested and we try to unravel what really happened 
um, and how this kid, uh, Takashi 69 or Daniel Hernandez, um, who's indicted for 47 years to life, um, could put away um, nine gang members and be part of the biggest, you know, trial really in one of the biggest trials in music history. And then he gets to walk out. Yeah. And now, and now he's, uh, he's still alive and it's, it's amazing. It is. Yeah. I mean, he's also been quite quiet. Um, <laughs> he had an, he, after he came out, he did have his, a number one hit with Nicki Minaj. Um, he broke records, um, but his album did minimal in sales. And um, since then he's sort of been quiet and disappeared. Unclear what's happened to him. Interesting. And uh, how have you, how has uh, the, the documentary been seen? What uh, kind of praise have you gotten so far for? Um, well, the, what's, what's, we've, we've gotten pretty good reviews, um, you know, across the board, but we've, but um, more than that, uh, we've had a very specific reaction from audiences. And that reaction is step one, outrage that Hulu would make a documentary about Takashi 69 or sanction one or purchase one that he is such a repugnant human being that, that uh, people are outraged first. And then secondly, uh, people watch it and the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive that it's not what anyone expected, that it really sort of sheds a light on um, the age that we live in where, uh, you know, social media dominates the way we think and people like Takashi 69 trolls like him can rise to the top and really dominate, um, you know, pub, uh, uh, pop culture and, you know, uh, the public discourse. And so it's, uh, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's a very classic story about just a kid who, a kid who, uh, got caught up in fame and fortune and um, lost himself in the process. But the, the response has been overwhelmingly positive and I think it's growing every day and the core fan base, you know, the lot of young people who know about his story, again, like the reaction is first, like, you know, some resistance that, that uh, Hulu somehow is promoting this guy. And then once people find out that it, it's not that, but it's a very different documentary, the reaction has been pretty positive. Great. Next question, Jen. That is so cool. Where do you think he's going to go from here? Where do you, could you, if you could see his future, where would you? I don't know. I mean, I think that the one thing about him that uh, fascinated me in the beginning is that he's an enigma. I mean, I, the, if you look at the kid um, and his sources of inspiration, it's, his hit song is called Gummo. Um, it's not a coincidence. It is based on the Harmony Korean movie Gummo, that name. Um, his name is Takashi69. He got his name from a Japanese um, tattoo artist. Um, he is a sponge of creative influences all merged together. And he, and, and you know, and, and, He's an enigma. So I think that it's really hard to know what he's going to do next. I think the one thing it feels like to me is that it's very difficult to reinvent yourself um, when you have 
the number 669 tattooed on your body 200 times and all over your face. Right. So the Daniel Hernandez that's underneath that is really the enigma and the creative source of all of this, who had all these profound influences and invented this sort of character, Takashi 69. If he's still in there somewhere, um, there's probably some interesting art that can come out. But if he's become just the troll Takashi 69, um, it's going to be hard to know if, if much can really happen except more trolling and um you know probably trying to consolidate his fan base because a lot of people have uh blacklisted yeah yeah i know for a fact it's interesting my uh colleague told me he said no one wants to interview him they're like certain like you know rap uh hip-hop shows and stuff like that refuse to talk to him meaning he's really blacklisted in a lot of ways isn't he yeah and and our our film has been you know, not covered by those, all of the hip hop, most of the hip hop podcasts and blogs, they, they haven't, you know, taken an interest in having a conversation about it because anything that's perceived as, um, you know, being beneficial to him has been blacklisted by those people in the industry. So I think normally, uh, you know, this film might have, I, I might be, um, talking to a lot of those same uh, places. Now that's not the case with everyone, but uh, I think there's a fear of any association. So exactly. um, I've spoken to rappers in, you know, over the phone um, and gotten their reaction to it and gotten great positive reactions from people I know who are hip hop artists, but uh, they're not very interested in promoting it or retweeting about it because they don't really want exactly. to have his name in their, you know, they want. They don't want to give shed light to him at all. So it sounds like the blackball to the business. Like when I was in professional wrestling, if you did something horrific, you were blackballed by promoters and different things. And music business is the same way. You get blackballed, and everyone just doesn't think of that. But that's terrible. But again, that's part of this process. But again, doc documentaries like this. But when I think about things, Vikram, I think of when you're talking about some of his craziness that he did. I think of. East Coast, West Coast, the days of Biggie and Tupac in certain ways. And it looks like he was kind of not trying to bring back certain things like that because it got lots of publicity, like the East Coast, West Coast rivalries back in the day. And, but in a different atmosphere, wouldn't you agree? In a little bit, he was looking Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the things that drew me to his story was that this, this was like a caricature of – Tupac story or something. It was like, it was exactly. It was almost like CB4 or exactly. some um, absurdist version of what the future of rap would be, and it was painted all over this kid's face. But it, yeah, it. But to me, it also had the allure of Biggie and Tupac um, of those stories. Um, and in fact, you know, big influences Nick Broomfield's movie Biggie and Top Tupac for me. Yeah. Um, a, a, a film that I love that's like, it's both um, a great investigative movie and also hilarious and absurd at the same time. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a big influence when making this film. Um, uh, funny enough, because of beef between um, Tupac and, uh, sorry, between, uh, between uh, Takashi and Snoop, um, you could see Takashi posting when he got out of jail, him watching um, 
watching Biggie and Tupac at home in the comfort of his home um, as a way to troll Snoop uh, watching mm-hmm. Suge Knight's scene. Um, so I think it's a huge connection between those two uh, to those story. And in, in, in a way, I, I think that legacy is also something that everybody in rap has held on to is like, those guys were the most, they are the biggest rappers who've ever lived and their beef is the most famous uh, is one of the reasons, you know? And it just seems like that Takashi 69 is definitely an artist that knows how to create controversy and probably watched a lot of that and mirrored it in certain ways. And that led to publicity, but yet at the end of the day, it kind of destroyed him. So it's a, it's a, it's really a tale. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and my whole thing is I don't want it to just, you know, to bring back, we lost Tupac, we lost Biggie. Uh, we don't need to lose anybody else because of too much testosterone, as I say. And the artists that they are still live in, throughout the music and always will. And so I'm hoping, keeping my fingers crossed, but at some point there'll be redemption and 69 can get it together. I love the way that you film this. I just find it fascinating. All right. All right, perfect, Jen. Go ahead and close us out for our guest today. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. And I had a, I have a question for you. If somebody wants to submit anything to you or to hire you for their next documentary or film, how would they go about it? Um, <laughs> I don't. I'm not. I'm not really. That's not really something I'm looking for. Uh, so you look for the projects, you kind of search them out yourself or that feels no one comes to you with ideas that it sounds like you kind of, I mean, if, if they're a good filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, and they really need to get in touch with me, they can figure it out. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. I'm not soliciting ideas. I'm not soliciting ideas or looking for a job. No. Gotcha. Okay. All right, Jen, go ahead and close it out. So thank you all for listening to your beautiful day on the Gratitude Radio Network and for Neil Haley and the Neil Haley Show. We've been listening to Vikram Gandhi and talking about his latest full-length film, 6-9, that's available on Netflix. Hulu. Hulu, sorry. Hulu, go ahead. Hulu. Hulu. And Vikram, we want to thank you for being on our show. We hope everybody has a beautiful day. And remember, you're blessed, you're loved, and you're sacred. Neil Haley here. Lensec has been a sponsor of the Neil Haley Show and Total Media Network for around a year and a half. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Lensec. Lensec has been a pioneer in IP security videos since 1998. The company is a trusted security partner with experience around the world. Lensec has experience working with customers in higher education, K-12 education, government, public safety, critical infrastructure, healthcare, commercial, and more. The physical security experts at Lensec help customers develop enterprise solutions for their complex physical security projects using our flagship software, Perspective VMS. Lensec's enterprise-level video management software, Perspective VMS, is a browser-based software that streams and captures IP security camera video. The latest version of PVMS uses HTML5 
interactive features in a thin client application that is designed to provide real-time situational awareness. Access and control and other advanced features are integrated into a unified security platform, creating an ability to track behavior and movement while monitoring the live or recorded video. For more information, please visit lensec.com. And now back to the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome the program, Caregiver Dave Nassani. Dave, how are you? And, uh, man, it's we're getting so close to the new year. Uh, are you building up your New Year's resolutions right now? Are you writing them down? I got, I got them. <laughs> I've not started yet. I've, I have a plan, but I'll, I'll wait to the last day to do it. I, and I think that's the problem. People take two weeks to do it and forget about the last two weeks of the calendar year. And I got things to do. I'll come up with them soon for sure. But I think it's going to be same as usual, but, you know, continue to have hope going into 2021 and say goodbye to 2020. I think it's the first year everyone in the world will say, thank you, leave. It's time for 2021. Yes, And I will be getting rid of some of this baby Corona fat though. That's, that's, a, that's a certain. Hey, I'm losing weight because I had to because I knew it because it was this, but I want to get in great shape for 2021. Our guest today is Stacy Lane Wilson, and she has a documentary on the ventures. Uh, Stacy, thanks for stopping by, and I, I appreciate you coming on. Oh, well, thanks for having me on, Neil and Dave. Good to see you guys today. Absolutely. I'm going to get a history, Dave. And if you want, I mean, because I mean, I don't know a lot about the ventures but it's amazing to know how many people love and know their music especially if they're in the guitar genre especially oh, in the, so yeah they were they were one of the two groups that did Wipeout, which was a big big uh hit in the 70s you know for surfer song right so they so uh, you know, yes. set, and set 70s when I was, I was born in 1973, Dave, so you uh, know more about the ventures. So you knew when you heard about doing this interview about that. So go ask Stacey your first question. Um, well, I just want to know what, what it was like, you know, being raised and uh, your friends knowing that you were the daughter of, you know, one of the ventures. Honestly, when I was a teenager, my friends thought it was a lot cooler than I did because you know how it is, your dad is just your dad and you know, nothing special. But, uh, but now over the years, I've certainly gained an appreciation and especially in the past few years since I've been making this documentary, I interviewed uh, almost 40 people, many of whom are famous musicians and to hear them you know, gush about my dad and the rest of the band, the Ventures, you know, really kind of opened my eyes to just how much they really mean to the rise of the electric guitar and how many other bands they influenced. Bands that I grew up loving may not have been the same without the Ventures. Yeah, the bands, two bands played Wipeout in the 70s, and there was always a debate, who does it better? And my favorite was <laughs> just so <laughs> right. Well, the Ventures, they venturized almost all the songs that they covered because Wipeout was actually written and recorded by the Surfaris in the 60s. And so, uh, but the Ventures, I think, you know, they just have a different sounding version. It's not necessarily better, but it's kind of the one that people know when they think about that song. Yeah, the drum solo especially. Yeah, yeah. Mel Taylor was a fantastic drummer. And unfortunately, uh, we lost him in the mid-90s. But 
um, his son, Leon, took over as the drummer for the Ventures. So there's still some original members in the band. Even, you know, it's amazing to think that they've been touring and recording for 60 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. They're in like 80s, right? Wow. How, how yeah. late did they actually continue recording and doing shows? Right. Well, my dad is um, one of two founding members of the group. He founded the group with Bob Vogel in uh, 1959 and they had their first hit walk don't run in 1960 so it's the 60th anniversary wow. of their debut but um yeah so he was in the band that whole time he never left the band he never missed a tour and but he retired from touring in uh 2015 and i was lucky enough to be able to go with my family to witness some of their final shows with my dad in the group and um but he's 87 now so he's wow. happily retired from well, touring it's really good, grueling Dave, good health good yeah health. yeah uh-huh then awesome. dave, dave will definitely get to that question now you, my kids know I, I was a former professional wrestler and know different things but they really don't know much about me so were you kind of that same thing with dad you knew dad what dad did but really didn't understand how much it meant to lots of people if that's what you're kind of saying yeah, part. exactly. I mean, yeah, I knew, you know, the facts and the figures, but until you really hear it from other people who are telling you how much they revere the ventures, for instance, John Fogarty told me a great story about learning how to play the guitar on a family cross country drive when he was a teenager and he had his acoustic guitar in the back of the the station wagon learning how to play walk don't run <laughs> and wow. driving everyone crazy like playing the same thing over and over again but it's really you know it's different to hear it in that context you know where you're hearing it from a person who's you know with you in the room it's different from reading statistics in a book or online yeah i was a drummer and i i that was the first song that i learned on my drums by the way Wipe um, out. yeah sweet See, Dave has definitely the more knowledge base than this. That's why I love bringing in this perspective, but I love learning. That's what I always love about interviews is I want to learn from the person. You know, you're doing all the research and come up with all the different things. Yeah, come up with the great questions, but learn from the guest. And that's the big thing. But everyone needs to definitely check out, check out the documentary. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But go ahead, Dave, with your next question. Well, I was just going to ask, uh, how did you come up with the documentary? Was it your idea? Was it something your dad's been talking about and you, you finally, you know, getting it off his bucket list? <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, I mean, believe it or not, this is the first feature length documentary ever about the ventures and you think about you know all the documentaries about wow. the rolling stones or some other groups you know and it's really quite something but actually you know my dad and my brother my brother tim um actually thought of it as doing like a stage play kind of like the jersey boys or something like that and then other filmmakers had wanted to make a documentary about the ventures but for whatever reason it just never happened and I had um, written and directed some narrative features, um, you know, some horror movies and different things. Um, so I kind of had a foot in the door already. So we just decided to try it and do it ourselves. And I'm really grateful that we did. You awesome. talked about horror movies uh, before <laughs> the interview, and I was glad I heard that. So tell me specifically enough, you, so you made some, you directed and how did you get involved in horror movies was that so you did kind of go the entertainment bug it sounds like just like your dad right yeah exactly yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah well I started out in the early 2000s as an entertainment reporter and I worked for the sci-fi channel and horror.com and Fangoria mm -hmm. magazine and so um and I also was writing horror novels and somehow you know I just made a couple short films and I was approached by a producer Jennifer 
Bean, who's married to Michael Bean, who you may remember from the Terminator and, you know, oh, some wow. of those great. Yeah. So she is a film producer and um, I had interviewed her husband and I, you know, we'd got to talking about film and I said, I have a few shorts and she looked at them and she said, hey, how would you like to direct a feature for our production company? And she was just really um, a great supporter of women in film and, and supporting new filmmakers. So the first movie that I wrote and directed for their production company is called Cabaret of the Dead. And it's about uh, burlesque dancers versus bloodthirsty zombies in post-apocalyptic <laughs> Hollywood. <laughs> so it's a hard wow. drama. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they're doing a documentary on my life. I know there's many different ways of doing documentary. So tell us about your documentary. How are you filming it? Uh, how long is it going to take? And, you know, what methods are you using? Well, it's all done. <laughs> so the, oh. the documentary is out so everybody can watch it. It's streaming everywhere. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but it was made over the course of three years and in such a way that a lot of the interviews were grabbed when and where we could. So we didn't have a controlled environment like a studio where every interviewee right. came in and you had the perfect environment. So it's a little um, like a bit of a patchwork, I guess you could say. But but it was really fun. I mean, for instance, I got um, Marky Ramone at a convention, you know, just with my iPhone. And he was saying how much the Ramones loved the ventures. And then, you know, we also had instances where we could go to someone's house. Like I went to John Fogarty's house and we had a camera set up and lighting. So, yeah, that was great. And then uh, Billy Bob Thornton, we interviewed him yeah. at the Sunset Marquee Hotel. And so, you know, there's just different, I think it actually adds to the visuals. It's all, it's not all just yeah. static and in the same place. And we also intercut the talking head interviews with some animation and some vintage footage of the ventures performing. And I hope you've got a lot of music in there too. <laughs> yeah, we do. Although I have to say that as an independent filmmaker and, you know, financing this thing, basically myself with my family, um, we couldn't afford to pay tens of thousands of dollars, for instance, for the original Walk Don't Run in its entirety. So there's bits and pieces of the songs uh, as fair use. And we also licensed and commissioned some covers. And then we also had some really fantastic up and coming surf bands and fans of the ventures kindly donate their music to us. So it's really a great kind of overview because not only is it about the ventures, but it's a celebration of who were influenced by the ventures. So you get to hear some of their music too. So tell me about the process of how you decided how to put together the documentary. I think Dave is asking a little bit more. I want to know more of that, you know, how you said decided interviews, all those things. Did you kind of come up with the idea and say, okay, now how are we going to implement this? What do we want? What do we really want the story to tell? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you do have to come up with a three act structure, just like you do with the narrative film. Um, but in this case, you know, as we were gathering up interviewees, someone come in at the last minute, others that you expected to be in the film fell through. So you really have to be able to roll with the punches and really, you know, just kind of let the story tell itself. And then when you've got, you know, say 30, 40 hours on film, which is quite considerable, then you edit it all together. And the story really came across, I think, um, more profoundly in the post-production process. You know, because I was just happy to get what I could when I could while I was filming the interviewees. It's curious that you would have to pay for the original Walk, Don't Run. I mean, doesn't your father own rights to this stuff? No. no. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, he didn't write those songs. 
So um, yeah, the ventures are really known for venturizing other people's songs. So even if, uh, you know, say the master was recorded by the ventures, but the composer is Johnny Smith, then Johnny Smith's estate, you know, sold those rights to Sony, which is a huge right. corporation, you know, and they just, you know, they're all about like, show me the money. So that's how that happened. But, um, but overall, you know, I think it really came out well. And uh, the response to the documentary has been really good. Now, that, explain fair use to people because people still probably don't understand that, how you can use other people's stuff, but still not if you credit it. Because that's a, that's an interesting process to look at when you're creating something. Absolutely. Well, a lot of um, documentaries, you think about a lot of unauthorized documentaries, you know, say there's a documentary about Donald Trump and they're using all the news footage of Donald Trump. They're not paying for that. Um, because it's fair use, it's considered educational. Um, so with the Ventures music, um, we couldn't play, you know, like I couldn't play the whole song, Walk, Don't Run. Right. But I have, I can show a, a, a little bit of it in context to, as an educational way to say, okay, well, this some, someone's talking about, you know, the guitar riffs in Walk, Don't Run. So you demonstrate that with the audio, but only for a few seconds. And I did have an entertainment attorney who I hired to vet everything and to make sure that everything was above board. Good idea oh, yeah. because I ended up interviewing Newt Gingrich and one of my web guys decided to put up a picture of Newt and it ended up where the the fair free press Francais was going after me and I had to make sure I could, I had to get a lawyer just to get through saying I was using it for fair use and it wasn't copyrighted, even though they said it was. So you have to be very careful. And I like to educate people on this show because they might hear the word fair use. So thanks for that. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't mean you can just use everything with impunity. You do have to definitely make sure that you're within legal bounds to use it for sure. It's a shame a big company like Sony or others like them, would want to, you know, contribute to a work of art like that and not try to gouge you for the uh, the money. <laughs> Sadly, that is not the case, no. Now, tell us about some other people that you interviewed for the documentary. Um, well, one thing, you know, as being uh, in the film and entertainment industry, I'm cognizant of the fact that we needed to have diversity in terms of age and gender and uh, backgrounds, ethnicities. So it was really important to me to gather up some younger musicians that love the ventures, um, women who are influenced by the ventures, bands, girl bands, Um, people from Japan love the ventures. So we had quite a few uh, people chiming in on that front. So yeah, it was important to me not to have all, you know, say my dad's contemporaries who are you know, Caucasians in their 80s. So to me, it was important to show a really broad overview. And so that was one thing that I think I brought to it. Wow. So I, I don't know, I, I'd like to know where and when. Uh, are we ready for that information yet, Neil? <laughs> We're getting close to it. Yeah, so you said it's available now, Stacey, correct? Everywhere? Yes, you can, yes. yeah. Where, yeah, how can people do it? Earlier this month and um, yeah, a lot of Lucky fans I've seen online. We have an Instagram and a Facebook people posting their DVD that they got for Christmas. And so it's been really gratifying to see how much people are embracing it and enjoying it and really grateful for the fact that there's finally a documentary out about their favorite group. So it's available VOD and also you said you can get it as a DVD as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Where's the best place? Your dad's reaction to all of this. 
I assume oh, well, of course, he was the <laughs> number one critic that I had to please. So I did show him a rough cut of the movie about uh, a year ago, and he did approve of it. So that made me happy. Um, but he was not part of the creative process because, you know, when you're the director, you really just kind of have to have that tunnel vision to the end. And so, I mean, if there was anything that he really objected to, it was uh, certainly not too late to take it out. But fortunately, he liked everything about it. And no, it's okay. definitely not a behind the music kind of thing because the Ventures are a very clean cut band. They're not, you know, they don't have any, yeah. but like, you know, Keith Richards or somebody. So it's, it's really a celebration of the music. It's not so much about the personalities in the band. So what Dave knows a lot about the Ventures, but for our audience listening and watching that might not, like where would they say, oh, that Eureka, he brought up, Wipeout, Dave, but you also brought up something when we were talking off air too that most known for. What would you say the ventures are most known for? Absolutely. I would say that their biggest hit and most well known song to the general public would be Hawaii 5 0, which is not the one that they use in the theme song because that's a lot of horns and stuff, but uh, it is their guitar based version was one of their biggest hits and it was on the charts for months and uh, people know that one really. And that came out after the show, right? Uh, right around that time, actually, I, I read that it resurrected the show because the show was kind of, you know, dipping in the ratings a little bit and then the ventures gave it kind of a shot in the arm with their radio hit and people started tuning into the show. I look that up because I forgot about that. Yeah. Do you play the guitar, Stacy? No, I don't. I did take one lesson and I, I thought, wow, this is really hard. I don't think I can do this. <laughs> I don't have the dedication or, you know, the passion to do it, but I do absolutely love guitar music. That's, that's my jam. So what's your ultimate goal with this documentary? What do you want people to learn most about the ventures? Um, I would like people to know how the ventures helped innovate a lot of the guitar sounds that we know and love today. For instance, the fuzz tone, um, you know, and the whammy bar and the rundown on the neck of the guitar, the Ventures innovated all of that. So I think that's very interesting. And uh, they certainly have gotten the credit that they deserve. They are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they were inducted in uh, 2000. Wow. Yeah, uh, 2009, I believe. Um, you know, but it, it is nice to have the general public also know that some of the songs that they listen to today may not have that exact same sound if it weren't for the ventures. I think yeah, this Neil, would be Neil, in case you're not uh, aware what that is, that's where they go. <laughs> exactly. Thanks for doing that because I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You could get people to sing or different things, but you're the you're the directors of the documentary. So, so, so I was <laughs> thinking uh, also, this is a great learning tool for people that want to start playing the guitar. Right. Mm, you said absolutely. This? Yeah. The ventures are really, I think, one of the few groups that ever had uh, their how to play guitar albums, their LPs, how to play guitar on the billboard charts. <laughs> you know, actually so many people wow. wanted to play guitar, look to the ventures for inspiration and, and education. All right. So okay. Dave has a final question and it's involving caregiving. Go ahead, Dave. Well, you know, I became a caregiver unexpectedly about 24 years ago. My wife had a stroke, lost oh. her, paralyzed. And, you know, we had to deal with it for a couple of years, but we, we managed, it was rough. But now, now I'm known as Caregiver Dave. I got this website, caregiverdave.com, and we travel the country. I've been on 35 TV shows and 
Harvard, NASDAQ, uh, Carnegie Hall, just helping oh, wow. care stay alive. Because I believe that caregiving is going to touch everybody's life. You know, I'm a boomer who's just, you know, reached 65. And, and so um, we're starting to think about it. I just buried my mother, my father uh, a while back, and they both needed care. But right. my question is, do you worry about this? I mean, with your dad approaching uh, the age that he is, that uh, you may have to be his caregiver? Uh, well, I don't live in the same state as him, but fortunately, my brother and my sister who live near Seattle do look in on him quite a bit, you know, but he's married and his wife takes care of him too. But of course, you know, that's something that you have to consider. I lost my mom two years ago and she was alone, you know, she didn't live with anybody. And, you know, I was very concerned about that, but she was also one of those people who's like, I can do everything myself. And, you know, I mean, that's good too. I think it keeps you mentally sharp in a way. So it's definitely a lot to consider. And I don't think people should ever ignore it. They should always plan ahead and think about it. And we do have some, some safeguards in place. And I think it's great what you're doing because people need to know that, you know, this is definitely it's reality. a challenging job. It's a very yes. challenging job for the it's caregiver. Really, and yeah. you're a caregiver, even Stacy, if you're not involved by checking on them. Caregiving is not just the process of being living with them and taking care of them, but worrying because we all worry about our loved ones. Of and course, that's, a care, yeah. that's a caregiving thing. And being on the phone, right, Dave? If you're yeah. drained by, even if you're, thousands of miles away and you're on the phone all the time that's a caregiving process too because that's the mental health and that caregiver hat is going to be drained by just the stress of talking to people on the phone right and the guilt that you can't be there and oh my god you know am i being selfish and all of that stuff but even the parents you know with five and six kids they're caregivers i mean you're you're a caregiver. oh yes we are ready for this pandemic to end and that we can be back to normal so that kids can go back to school again my kids are online it's an unbelievable process they finally figured it out the second time i guess by having real classes online than the first time where it was pretty much just homeschooling so we're getting through but they're going to go back January 17th, unless things change, I wouldn't, I'm not holding my breath for January 17th, 18th, but we will see, but they're off right now for holiday break, but yes, it is caregiving. Anytime you are constantly taking care of someone that's caregiving. So I appreciate it. Stacy. There's a, is a website for the documentary that people can check out. Yes, there sure is. It is very easy to remember because it's the name of the documentary, which is the ventures starsonguitars.com. Fantastic. I think that anyone that's looking to be a rock star and wants to play guitar needs to check out this documentary. Anyone involved in the history of music, and uh, especially if you're going, you've gone to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you said, I want to learn more about the ventures. Well, here you go, right there. Check out the <laughs> documentary. Right. So I appreciate it, Stacey. I knew I'd learned oh, some you. stuff, but uh, definitely I don't, I'm going to definitely want to screen the film and take a look at it and check it out. And uh, I appreciate That's you coming true. by. Thanks. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah. All right. Take care. All right, guys. All right. That was the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. Take care. Bye. Celebrity Slots. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download. Free to play. Yeah, baby. 
What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.